Hi, everyone. It's Joanna. I'm pretty stoked about today's podcast. I am featuring the talented Sisters in Crime Canada West authors. I'm one of their siblings. Yes, these ladies, these authors are so cool. And I learned so much from them from this one discussion. Uh, firstly, mostly they are funny, um, lots of laughs, and uh, they're a pretty cool bunch of women. You're going to learn about working from a three-act structure, um, one author, skiing, minus 20 degrees, and I should have asked her if that was Fahrenheit or Celsius, and she was skiing in the Yukon, I think that that doesn't that just says it there. It's it's cold. Um, you're going to hear some Shakespeare. One author retrofitted her story for a short story, and um, yeah, uh, first time I've ever heard I've heard about the snowflake method of plotting. So grab a tea, grab a coffee, grab a glass of wine, um, whatever's your fancy, and I hope you really do enjoy this podcast. Um, last email I saw, I think we were talking about taking this show on the road. Um, but somebody's, somebody needs to get us a VW, a VW bus, or was it a VW van? Hello there, my fellow sophisticated creatives. Welcome to JCV Art Studio from the dressing room. Ozzy is in the studio with me. This is episode 12. In today's podcast, I'm having a roundtable discussion with the very talented authors of The Sisters in Crime, Chapter West. We're going to talk about the collection of mystery stories and their newly released anthology, Crime Wave. May I introduce Melody Campbell, K.L. Abramson, J.E. Jane Bernard, who will be joining us a little later. Technology hopefully will be in our favor. Alice Biena, Winona Kent, Marcel Dubay, Deborah Henry, Charlotte Morganti, and Marilee Robinson. Ladies, Ozzy and I welcome you to the dressing room. Thank you. <laughs> Hi there. Thank you. Nice Hello. to be here. Thank you for doing this with me. I really appreciate it. First idea I want to kind of tackle with this anthology is whose idea was it to create Crime Wave? Um, was it a pre-COVID, sipping wine beside a lounge fireplace after a writing retreat? Um, who voiced the first what if? And um, tell me it wasn't a retreat like Jane Bernard writes about and no pickles were on the menu. So who who said the first what if? Um, I can answer that. It's Charlotte speaking. Um, it was actually a past president of uh, the Canada West chapter, Linda L. Richards, who is um, a local Vancouver writer of uh, 
mysteries and and um, also edits a, a literary journal. But um, she, we were just chat. It wasn't anything exotic like a like a writer's retreat. And I'm sad to tell you, we didn't even have drinks in our hands. But uh, <laughs> anyway, we were trying to come up with ideas that would help promote our members. And she said, well, what if we do an anthology? And so she was the spearhead for it. And then um, after she um, left, the rest of us continued on. And I convinced Karen Abrahamson and uh, Jane Bernard and Mara Lee and Marcel to step in and actually take over all the planning and organization. So. I got to step back and not do anything. It was great. <laughs> sure, not do anything, said the president of the chapter. <laughs> no, I didn't. Yeah, I seem to recall some frantic emails. This all started way before COVID. I mean, it, yeah. um, this was a, a year in planning, basically a year and a half in planning before yeah. we we produced the, the anthology last year. Um, what, I guess it was, I know I we started really moving on it May, June of mm -hmm. yeah. 2019. That's interesting, Karen. Um, Jane couldn't join us when we did our group call in for this podcast, but she had a crucial role in bringing together this anthology. And I wanted her to still be included. So um, Jane has answers, has input, and I'm just going to hand it over to Jane now. Hi, I'm Jane. I write my Falls Mystery Series as J.E. Bernard. I'm so happy to be part of this podcast with my sisters in crime from Canada West. Just for the record, I've never been at a writing retreat where anyone was murdered. I came on board uh, after the idea of the anthology was approved as a volunteer editor, and I got to participate in choosing the theme, title, and cover, which was very exciting for me. That, that is really cool, Jane. Um, people don't realize the work that's involved behind the scenes and how much planning ahead of time goes into a book, uh, you know, uh, an anthology, a book, uh, a big project like this. So I'd like to start by introducing Melody C Campbell. Melody is called the Queen of Comedy by the Toronto Sun and the Canadian literary heir to Donald Westlake by Ellery Queen Mystery Magazine. Vancouver raised, Melody has shared a literary shortlist with Margaret Atwood and was seen lurking in Amazon's top 50 bestseller list between Tom Clancy and Nora Roberts. Her 16 novels and 50 short stories have won 10 awards, including the Derringer and the Arthur Ellis. Melody is the former executive director of the Crime Writers of Canada. Now, Melody, you've been the executive director of CWC, Crime Writers of Canada, and you teach crime writing to aspiring authors. I've heard you talk about the difference between mystery fiction and suspense or thriller fiction. 
Can you give us a quick breakdown? Because I'm also particularly interested because I just keep saying, yeah, I, I write thriller, thriller, but I'm like, okay, I, I want to hear the breakdown. <laughs> okay, well, thank you for having me on today, Joanna. And yeah, um, we when we go into a library or we go into a bookstore, we see just mystery fiction and it includes suspense and mystery fiction or what we now call thriller these days. Uh, we used to call it suspense. It's the same thing as thriller. Uh, and I'm always a little puzzled by that because they're written very, very differently and they have different purposes. Um, mystery fiction is a puzzle story. It starts with a murder or the crime and the book is about the solving of the crime. So the protagonist's job is to discover who committed the crime and why. And the reader and the detective both receive the same information at the same time. Anything else is not playing fair. Now, if we're talking a murder mystery, you want to have at least three good suspects, as we say, because the whole point is the reader's trying to pit themselves against the detective to see who can get to the ending first. So it's, it's almost a bit of a cerebral challenge. I know people who like um, mystery fiction really love it for the puzzle. And if you give away the ending too soon, well, they're really appalled and disgusted. So, <laughs> so that's mystery fiction. It would be, we would call it classic fiction, classic mystery fiction, amateur sleuth, cozy, Private Eye, Police Procedural, Historical, they all fit under that mystery heading. Okay. Then we have the suspense thriller end of the crime business. And I should start <laughs> off by saying, first of all, that all crime books are about the crime. Okay, the crime has to be central to the book. It can't be just about the effects that a crime long ago had on a family. Uh, the crime book is about the crime itself. So in suspense thriller, it's about the prevention of the crime is the quickest way I can put it. Suspense fiction is about a character in jeopardy. And it's one in which the main action, the crime or the murder hasn't taken place yet. And the culprit may actually be known, but the emphasis is on the tension built by anticipating the outcome. In other words, Will our beloved protagonist escape the danger that is facing him right now, him or her right now? And so that's the big split. Um, there are all sorts of thriller types. There's a macro thriller where the whole world is in jeopardy, a micro thriller, which is probably what you think is a thriller where one person or, or a family is in jeopardy. There's psychological, there's espionage spy falls in here. My own uh, goddaughter series is a caper and heist series. That actually falls into thriller, even though it's a humorous series. So you often get humor in, in the suspense area. Gothic, paranormal, and for, for uh, just general knowledge here, paranormal means anything that can't be explained by science. So you could have several paranormal elements in a suspense uh, novel too, and it would still be considered a crime novel. So that's the basic breakdown. That's what publishers generally use. And it's what we use at Crime Writers of Canada. And of course, in all my writing classes. Okay. Whew, I'm okay then. <laughs> I've categorized myself right. <laughs> okay. Good. Okay. Melody, it's uh, just a quick, uh, Charlotte speaking. Yeah. Um, can we sign up for your classes? Because I was taking <laughs> notes here. And 
Actually, you can. I, I teach at Sheridan College. Of course, they're now online, and I do teach a course called Crafting a Novel, which All is right. a boot camp, a real boot camp for, for writing. We go into every genre that's out there. We break down the genre to see what you need to for endings in those particular genres. Um, we do plotting. Uh, we do structure, so you learn how to do an outline, how to do query letters, all that stuff. And it's a lot of fun. Anyways, you can look up Sheridan College if you're interested. And thanks for asking. <laughs> it sounds really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I was taking That's notes fun. too. Yeah. <laughs> I've taught writing at Sheridan College, I'm afraid to say this, since 92. Wow. <laughs> when you were 12. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, well, Melody, I, I, you're not off the hook yet. Okay. Um, in the foreword to Crime Wave, you write, crime has always been a woman's genre. Our most famous golden age authors were women, Agatha Christie, Dorothy Sayers, and in America, Mary Roberts Reinhardt. They were the masters at building suspense. The authors in this anthology skillfully continue this tradition. I'm asking the question you ask in your foreword, why women in crime? Oh, good question. And I, whenever I'm on panels, and, and I do a lot of gigs at libraries and things, uh, this one always comes up. And I, I feel very strongly about this. There's two things, really. First is we're often talking about murder when we talk about crime books either the solving of it or the preventing of it from taking place. And murder is important. It's never trivial because it's the worst thing that can happen. It's unthinkable horror and tragedy, and it puts lives in chaos. So that's one thing, but I really think that crime books are about justice. And I think women care very much about justice. In fact, I'd go farther. I think it's the difference between law and justice. Real life isn't fair. And so often the law lets us down. In our pleasure reading, we're after justice, the justice we so often don't get in real life, especially as women. And I think that's why the Golden Age authors were so keen to address all this. In crime fiction, usually justice prevails and evildoers get their just desserts. Maybe we get there outside the law in a shady way, like in my Goddaughter Mob series. But in crime fiction, by the end, we know that chaos will be brought to order and the readers left with satisfaction and usually a smile at the end. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I am now going to open this to all of you. When you just identify yourself, that would be fantastic. Okay, it is a bit political, but I, 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 sometimes I am floored at what I hear on the podcasts I listen to. So I listen to the Kobo Writing Life podcast, and I know this is a bad pun, but literally I was blown away, sorry, okay, mm -hmm. when author Karen Slaughter, she was interviewed, and she said when one of her first books was released, men and female book reviewers said her book was too violent. Uh, women should not be writing about this extreme violence. 
And I was just like, say what? <laughs> like, like, I mean, are we insinuating that we are too delicate to write about violence? So, hey, let's let's start. Let's start from how I see on my screen. Melody, what do you think about that statement? Okay, well, it's very interesting you bring that one up because two years ago I interviewed um, Alifair Burke and and Karen Slaughter on stage at the theater in in the Toronto area, and that definitely came up. Um, now I don't know if you've read Karen Slaughter, but she is well named. <laughs> it is very violent stuff. She goes places that certainly men don't want us to go. Uh, you know, there there is definitely that, and and some women have to hide their eyes for for some of this as well. Um, her was very that is her goal, by the way. She made that pretty clear that that she wanted to really lay it out. So in a cozy, we say, of course, that the, that the violence is off stage, the rape is off stage. It, it wouldn't be in a cozy anyway, so if it was rape, sorry, <laughs> but but usually in a mystery, the violence off stage. In Karen's work, it's right there you're facing it, you're going through it yourself. It's extremely powerful. Okay. So yeah, I can see why people might have a hard time with it, but that's her shtick and she does it very, very well. And heck, you know, she's a millionaire and I'm not. So. Okay. okay. Marcel, what do you think? Um, I personally don't really like a whole lot of violence in my books. I don't care who's writing them, men or women. Um, but um, I think that as a woman, if I want to write a slaughter scene, I can and I will. So, yeah, uh, it's up to the individual exactly. and the individual reader. Yeah. Alice? Yeah, I, I agree with uh, Marcel and Melody. And I think uh, women should be able to write whatever story they want to write. And as Melody said, there's rules for which category it fits in. So readers are given a heads up. Are you going to read a, something violent? Or are you going to read a cozy? Uh, and so, you know, they can sort of gauge what they want to read through those um, descriptions of the genre. But I think the reviewers who said her book was too violent um, we're obviously victims of the many stereotypical cultural myths um, that have been created, you know, by our society to shore up our society's beliefs uh, about the behavior um, of, of women and, and what that expectation should be. So, um, you know, I know it's the 21st century, but we're still working on destroying some of those myths. Yeah. Amen, sister. <laughs> yeah, this is this is Deborah speaking, and I agree with uh, Marcel. Um, I think men and women can write, you know, would, in whichever genre they they feel comfortable with, and uh, and readers can enjoy reading, you know, whatever genre they find comfortable, you know, a co whether it be a cozy or a thriller, and uh, you know who the author is, you know, shouldn't shouldn't matter whether it's a male or a female. Yeah. I take exception sometimes when I see a lot of uh, thrillers where females become the victims and, and are murdered and raped you know, by serial killers. For me that, I mean, maybe that's just a personal <laughs> uh, position, but, uh, but I find that there is a lot of that uh, and uh, I tend to not read those types of stories. 
This is Nona. Um, I'm in a kind of unusual situation in that I'm writing in the first person as a male. My main character is a guy. Um, And I have to be reminded by my friend Brian in England, who acts as my sort of first reader. You have to think like a guy here. You have to. My reactions as a woman sometimes have to be coached so that I know how to react as a male. So in my in my novel, Notes on a Missing G-String, I'm actually quite squeamish about writing about really violent stuff. And I'd really rather not read it either. Um, but having said that, when I wrote G-String, um, Brian encouraged me to add some very nasty stuff to the narrative. And he said, why don't you have Jason hung up by his hands and then he's beaten with an electrical cord all over his back and legs. And so so I did it. And it's quite a powerful scene in the book. And then that put me in the mood. So then I had his bare feet burned with hot ingots. So <laughs> I'm not usually that violent in my stories. Just saying, I blame it all on Brian. <laughs> in the mood, <moon>, okay? <laughs> This is Karen, uh, K.L. Abrahamson, Karen speaking here. And, you know, I I think that the reviewers that Karen Slaughter was referencing were really just trying to put women writers in a box or that they had women in a box and Karen Slaughter was writing outside those boundaries. And at one time, that was really, really challenging. I mean, it's sort of like what the publishing industry is going through right now with Black writers, you know, allowing the voices to be heard in the way those voices want to be heard. And um, so I, I think that, uh, or I'm hoping that it's not quite as uh, as sexist as I read that statement um, as it used to be. Um, I'm I may not get super graphic, but I do. I, I can write violence, and I I don't mind writing violence, and I work with the. Um, the mantra, hurt your characters, and I do. I'm not afraid of that. I won't kill them off, but I do do hurt my characters, and I don't have a problem with that. So I I think that, as Marcel mentioned, um, and as Melanie said, you know, we we all have our own styles when we're writing, and uh, we should be free to express our ideas in that way. Um, You know, and some of us don't feel less comfortable with writing violence, some of us shy away from it, Marcel. <laughs> <laughs> right, call me out. <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, it, it is a personal style thing. Yeah. Jane here. The standard writing advice, whether you buy it or not, but that's a separate discussion, is write what you know. Well, overwhelmingly, throughout recorded history and probably before, Women have been targets of violence far more often than perpetrators of it. Even now, women are much more likely to be beaten or killed by someone they know, even someone they've been intimate with, than by a stranger. So why would we not write violence? We may not write it with the same style or emphases as male authors do, but our way of writing it is fully as valid. Maybe more so, because we can see both the perpetrator and the victim side of it, and we write from our bone-deep knowledge of living under the threat of violence simply by existing in the world as female. Yeah, and it's interesting because I'm, like you, Karen, I believe in don't be kind to your characters, be nasty to your characters, but I also can um, lean towards with what Deborah had said in that having worked at the prosecutor's office, I have this fine line of what I will cross over to 
having been exposed to some really awful events, incidents because of working at Crown. So it's weird. As long as I can kind of keep it in my head as this is fiction, this isn't real life, I'm okay. But they're like Deborah said, I will never, ever, ever write a serial killer series ever. Right. Just mm -hmm. it, it, it. I don't know. Some things hit too close to home. Does that make sense? Yes. yes. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's get into each one of your really cool stories. So we're going to start with Alice, Alice Vienna. She wrote The Potluck Brigade. Alice is a Canadian crime writer and the author of the Georgia Night Mystery Series. Her debut novel, Night Blind, was a 2016 Crime Writers of Canada Arthur Alice Awards finalist. She is, of course, a member of Sisters in Crime, uh, the Crime Writers of Canada, and the Writers Guild of, um, of Alberta. The second in the Georgia Night series, Night Trials, was released on February 25th. Hey! <laughs> wow. I, Alice, I, I sure hope there was some wine involved on that day. Yeah, I have to admit there was. <laughs> Thank you so much. Good. So how did you get the idea for the Potluck Brigade? Uh, well, when the title of the anthology Crime Wave was announced, it, it actually brought to mind the increasing rural crime wave we were having here in Alberta. And uh, particularly in the years 2016 to 2019, where rural crime rates were up to 40% higher than they were in urban centers. And uh, largely as a result of the growing unemployment uh, here in the province, as well as increased opiate use. Um, so of course I wanted to set my story in Alberta in one of these rural or small town settings. And uh, my mind immediately went to the badlands of Alberta around Drumheller, uh, where I was born and, and spent my early years. Um, so that area around Drumheller, there's a lot of uh, old uh, coal mining towns, which were quite vibrant, you know, in the 40s and 50s. But once uh, uh, heating with coal kind of became passe, these towns sort of dried up. And even though a few still exist today, uh, a lot of them are essentially ghost towns or maybe there's a, you know, a handful of inhabitants that still live there, uh, you know, usually less than 100 people in the town. Um, so the next question for my story was, OK, uh, well, what kind of crime would be happening in these uh, these little um, left behind towns? And uh, so the inhabitants of these areas would largely be older folks uh, who had lived there most of their lives. Uh, social interaction would be probably uh, centered around the community center where they might meet every few weeks or a month, you know, for a book club or potluck supper. Um, so once that idea came to mind, I decided that I would have to write this story. The inhabitants, of course, are very feisty individuals, you know, still living and trying to live independently, as they would be because these people grew up during hard times and, and, and worked in that area and had, you know, worked uh, in physically hard um, uh, labor. And uh, so they're fighting to um, remain ind independent, and yet they know uh, that their um, eventual fate is sealed. And so they decide to take matters into their own hands, 
And so that was the how the story came about. Your heroine, Jan. Uh, she's trying to solve Victor's murder. <laughs> and she knows something's not right. And she's losing her memory. And she doesn't even know if she committed the crime or not. Okay. And one thing that hit me when I was reading it is you weave in backstory. And I was wondering, was it difficult introducing the little bit, I don't want to say a little bit, the, the backstory in a few sentences compared to weaving backstory into a novel? Yeah, so actually, I found it slightly easier. And uh, maybe because in the back of my mind, I knew I was limited by this word count. And uh, so I did. So I was very conscious of the fact that if I was going to say anything about her, her background, I had to weave it in, you know, very quickly, concisely using a few words here and there, maybe a sentence sort of at most. And uh, whereas when I'm writing a novel, I, I somehow give myself permission, although all novels do have a word count that eventually you have to live to. But I think when I'm writing a novel, I sort of give myself permission to just write. And then I can fall prey to writing actually several paragraphs about some, some character's backstory, um, which of course I have to edit out later. Uh, along with about another 20,000 20, extraneous words or so that I've also let <laughs> creep into the story. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. So, we're thank you, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so moving on to our next author, Deborah Henry. Her novel, her short story is Local Intelligence. <clears throat> Deborah Henry is an award-winning West Coast author. She has published her short fiction in literary journals, such as Island Writer Magazine. Recently, her short story, Ashes to Ashes, won first prize in the Victoria Writer Society's annual fiction writing contest. She is currently working on a novel, Hooked on Murder, set on Northern Vancouver Island. Deborah, I wanted to thank you because you literally took me back into my backyard. I, I I was born and raised in Nanaimo and uh, lived in Victoria. I'm slowly making my way up to Shemanus. And I have to tell you, I will forever look at mannequins differently from now on. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I was wondering what made you want to write about the awful business of um, diamond smuggling? Well, that's interesting. Um, I've written a lot of literary short stories. And when the call came out for uh, submissions for um, Crime Wave, I didn't have a clue about how to, a clue. I, I mean, as a mystery writer, you're supposed to have a clue, right? Uh, I didn't have a clue about how to write mm -hmm. a, a mystery short story. You have to incorporate all of these um, elements such as um, clues and, uh, uh, introduce suspects and that sort of thing. So, so I sort of looked at the uh, submission guidelines again and again, and uh, then it finally occurred to me that I could use the characters and setting from a novel that I've been sending out to publishers and uh, as a starting point for the short story. And I thought that would be a bonus because having a short story published, possibly published, might help sell my novel. 
So with a um, deadline for submissions looming, I decided to have an invasion of mannequins uh, <laughs> turn up in Turnaround Bay, which is the setting of my novel, and have Constables Quinn and Connor sort out where they came from. Since the mannequins hadn't committed a crime after about 15 pages, <laughs> I was uh, getting a little bit stumped. And so I brainstormed with my writing group about how to move the story forward and involve a crime. And so we all came up with the idea of uh, smuggling mannequins in these, uh, smuggling diamonds in these mannequins. Um, yeah, so, so then I started doing some research into uh, diamond smuggling and found out that in Canada, as a producer of diamonds, we get blood diamonds uh, smuggled into the country and then their origin is, um, is not fully known and, and they're sold out into the world as Canadian diamonds. So, so this idea uh, of smuggling diamonds in, in mannequins and having them wash ashore and turn around bay, you know, the two ideas of diamonds and mannequins came together and the story started to, to move forward and became quite a lot of fun. That's cool. And okay, so because I, I know I was wondering, so you had mentioned a novel and I was wondering with your short story, if you had thought of expanding it into a novel, but it sounds like you already had worked on it as a novel? Well, you know, it hadn't occurred to me to take this short story and make it into a novel. The manuscript I'm sending out right now, uh, set in Turnaround Bay, is called Hooked on Murder, and it explores the controversial idea of uh, fish farming. And so I have a second novel that I've been writing as I've sent out the first one involving these same characters and setting, and it's called uh, Never Coming Home. And, you know, with, when you mentioned this about turning this into a novel, I think the idea of uh, diamond smuggling, you, do, you would never think of Northern Vancouver Island as a place for diamond smuggling. But I never have trouble expanding a story, you know. So, like, if the word count is uh, 2,500 words, I'll come in at 2,499. <laughs> so I could easily take this short story and turn it into a novel. So, so thank you for that idea. Yeah, well, not that I know sketchy people, okay. <laughs> I just, you said northern, northern, the northern part of the island. Um, I have heard stories of, and please, this, I'm not painting a, a brush here. I've heard a story of, let's say, an individual fishing boat where they've been in the waters of northern, of north of the island. And let's just say packages were being dropped from the sky into the water <laughs> and they were being picked up. And an individual who was on the boat was just told, keep looking forward, keep looking forward. Like, just don't pay attention what's that packages are dropping from the sky. OK, so, yeah, yeah, it's interesting. So oh, an invasion of mannequins is not out of <laughs> out of line for the territory. Well, I I it in Turnaround Bay, and it's a, a fictional community on the very northern end of Vancouver Island. And and people, I it's the end of the road, so people either you know settle in when they get there, or they turn around and head back to the rat race. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the other thing I wanted to say, all of you, your stories, I interviewed an editor yesterday for the podcast and 
I learned learned a lot. You know, I find actually I, I'm just I'm going to open this up to all of you. Too. I'm going to put a mark where I'm at. <laughs> this up to all of you. She had we had we were talking, and you, I find sometimes you get so deep into your story, you get so deep into your novel, you know, checking motivations, plot line, and she kept bringing up the reader experience, and all of you, each one of these stories, I really enjoyed. I had a reader experience with each one of these. Um, what do you guys have, has the thought of reader experience, this is gonna sound really silly, crossed your minds when you're writing? I mean, because sometimes I find with some novels I read, and even with some of these stories, the side characters, I just, I really enjoyed. And the side character, it's almost like when you get a side character, that you also enjoy with the main character. It's almost like a little extra gift, you know, like a little extra cookie you get with your, your mocha or your latte. <laughs> so is the reader experience on your mind when oh, you are writing? Always, top of the always. list. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, anyone else? No? Yeah, well, can I, if I can just say, yeah. in my classes, I always talk about this. You have to make a choice at the beginning. Are you writing for readers or are you writing just for yourself? Because it's damned easy writing for yourself. Okay. I mean, what's hard is writing for 10,000 readers. Yeah. And, and so, yes, if you want to get published and, and, you know, become a bestseller or even a B list or a C list, whatever, you're going to have to write with the reader in mind. Yeah. 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 This is Marcel. Uh, when I when I do when I write the story the first time, um, I never think about the reader. I just write the story. Uh, it's only afterwards when I go back and go through and, and try to, to figure out, does this make sense for somebody reading this? And, but the first time, the first go, no, I don't, I don't write for the reader, I write for me. I'm guilty. <laughs> I do. I'm, I'm wanting to entertain me at like the first draft. That's, that's where okay. I'm at. So this is, this is Deborah. Yes. I, I tend to agree with my first draft. I, I tend to think of myself as my ideal reader. And so if I'm engaged in the story and enjoying what I'm writing, there might be a certain element out there in the population who is also um, interested. I, I tend to not write for, for a reader. I, I'm not quite sure why. Maybe that's why I haven't published a novel yet. But... Uh, <laughs> I, I'm sure there's someone out there or a group of people out there who are like-minded. And I think that's why within the mystery genre, we have so many sub-genres because people are, are, have interest in, in, uh, in different uh, elements of crime fiction. Yeah, and this is Karen, Karen speaking. And uh, I, I tend to, I, I think when I write... I, I don't say I write for myself, although I love the writing process, but um, I certainly don't keep the the reader, you know, really close to my head, because if I do, that will slow me down. It will stop me. It, I'll get so caught up in it's like having the editor sitting on my shoulder and I have a real problem with an editor sitting on my shoulder. So I try and set them aside a little bit. And but what I try and do is as, as I'm writing is I, I'm really taking note of my own emotional reactions to the story as I go. 
And I'm hoping that when I'm sitting there either laughing or, or crying, as I, because I, I don't have a lot of laughter in my books, but, uh, um, that, 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 that will have the same reaction for the, the reader. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Joanna, it's Melody again. Yeah. If I could just quote Stephen King, I think he had a marvelous breakdown of this. I, I found it very amusing. He was talking about the difference between literary fiction and popular fiction. And he said, literary writers of literary fiction are more, more apt to ask the question, what will the writing of this piece mean to me? Okay. Whereas the writers of popular fiction are more likely to ask, what is the writing of this particular piece going to mean for my readers? And I thought that's very interesting. Ni neither is right or wrong. It just, it just shows a different perspective. That's cool. And once again, I, I, you know, I would agree that that I write the books. I wish someone else would write so I could read them. Yeah, yeah, I agree totally. It can't be totally one way or the other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool, cool. All right, Winona, <laughs> Salty Dog Blues. So, so our listeners know Winona Kent is the author of eight novels, two tongue-in-cheek spy, spy stories. I haven't had my heavy-duty copy yet, Winona, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll try that again. Two tongue-in-cheek spy stories, three time travel historical romances, three mysteries featuring professional musician, amateur sleuth, Jason Davey, in Coldplay, Notes on a Missing G-String, and Lost Time, one novella featuring Jason, Disturbing the Peace, and she is currently writing novel number nine. So Winona, the only exposure I had to cruise ships was a teenager watching the love boat, okay, <laughs> Saturday nights. Um, so what, what made you decide, okay, we're going to have a cruise ship being the the backdrop of the story. Um, like, what made you decide we're gonna? I'm going to write a mystery happening on. I don't want to say the love boat on a cruise ship, and you, <laughs> you don't have to reveal sources or anything like that. I will reveal my sources. Um, <laughs> my sister worked for a cruise line for about 15 years, and I traveled with her on a number of occasions. And she was a captain's secretary, which they don't have that role anymore. Um, but her office was right behind the bridge and she basically ran the ship. <laughs> she worked with the captain. So when I went on cruises with her, I stayed in her cabin and I occasionally helped her with some of her work. And I got to see what went on behind the scenes. So below decks, so from a crew point of view, as well as a passenger point of view, because I was allowed to go into the passenger areas and be a passenger, but I could also hang out with the crew and uh, go to their parties and things like that. So a very long time ago, I started working on a novel about a guy who was working as an entertainer on board a cruise ship. And I was also inspired by a real entertainer on a cruise to Alaska that I did. And he was playing the guitar and singing up in one of the lounges. And I thought he'd make a great hero. Yeah. So that was the inspiration for the first Jason Davy story, which was my novel Coldplay, which was published about nine years ago in 2012. And when I found out about the Crime Wave anthology, I actually wrote the short story, Salty Dog Blues, as a prequel to Coldplay. So I wrote it um, 
to fit the uh, instructions for for Crime Wave. And it's about the same character, Jason the Entertainer and Amateur Sleuth. But I wrote it to take place sometime before Coldplay. So it's actually, chronologically, it's his first story. But in terms of when my stories were written, it's the latest. So. Okay. okay, cool. Well, the other day, like I was, I, I took Ozzy for a walk. <laughs> and as we're walking, there's there really was this little chihuahua on the sun deck. <laughs> And this little chihuahua was just giving it, right? So, of course, my, my little Aussie, he's going to give it right back. And I, would, I did. I was looking at this little chihuahua, and I thought, oh, you don't want to be on Nona's cruise ship. <laughs> um, so thinking about the question, I and you kind of, um, you, you, I think you may have already a- answered this, but thinking about what I asked Deborah. So what was it about Jason Davey and his character that made you decide to take to take him, have him become in the novel? Like you, you kind of answered that a bit already, but mm-hmm. you, you wanted to take him further. Yeah. Well, as I said, um, Salty Dog Blues is actually a really recent story and I retrofitted it. Um, And I didn't originally write Coldplay, the novel, with the intention of making a mystery series. Um, I wrote three time travel stories after that one. But then I was encouraged to look at writing a mystery um, to change um, my genres. And it was suggested that I take Jason from Coldplay and make him into a proper amateur sleuth after he'd finished his career at sea and was back on dry land. So that's what I did. Um, He's a very neat character to write about. He has a musical pedigree, which is kind of cool. His parents were in a really famous folky pop band, which I'm getting a lot of mileage out of with the novels. And with with Salty Rock Blues, I just really, really enjoyed going back to Jason's cruise ship days and letting him interact with one of the most annoying passengers the crew has ever had to deal with. Um, You're not allowed to take pets on board and you can take a service dog on board, but it's very, very restrictive. Um, But back in 2012, when I set the story, it was a lot more open um, and they didn't have that many rules about what kind of service animal you could bring on board. So I took advantage of that. Um, I enjoyed getting Jason back on board the Star Sapphire. Um, I have a real passion for old ocean liners and it was like revisiting an old friend because the ship is based on a real ship that I sailed across the Atlantic on way back in 1971. This has since been scrapped, but just in case you're interested, that cruise ship, um, the Star Sapphire is based on the old Empress of, of Canada, which became Carnival Cruise Line's first ship, the Mardi Gras, back in the 1970s. So that's a little piece of history there. But I just, I love working with Jason. He's he's such a fun character. Good, good, good. So I'm, I'm going to open this up to everybody. Um, how many of you decided to take a character from a short story and feature that character in a novel? or even vice versa. Karen, start with you. Yes, I've I've certainly done that. Um, I actually wrote a short story that I called After Ekaterina, and that became a series of four books, uh, four novels as a result of, uh, because I liked the character, I liked the premise, and uh, yeah, so it's, it's fun. You sometimes meet it it's like meeting an acquaintance and wanting to become best friends. Yeah. So you get a chance to go and really explore their life. Yeah. yeah. Anyone else? Uh, Merrily. I, um, I've done the reverse. I've taken characters 
from uh, from my first novel, um, Murderous and Cooperative, um, and I kind of wanted to spend more time with the characters without finishing a sequel, although I'm hoping to finish the sequel, but uh, they appeared in the story that was in published in Mystery Weekly last year. And similarly, the story in this anthology, um, or the, the characters are based on characters in a novel that I'm currently working on. Good. Yes. Yeah, this is this is Alice. So I wrote um, three of my novels before I even attempted a short story. And I say attempted, it is a different way of writing. Yeah. Uh, so I have not used um, a character from my short story in a novel, but hearing this discussion, I'm beginning to think that that might occur in the future. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and it, it goes both, this is Karen speaking again, um, it goes both ways. I mean, I've, I've done both, uh, both uh, taking from a short story and making it into a novel, and then I've also gone and written short stories, prequels basically, to novels in short stories. Yeah. I've done the same, Karen. Yeah, it's, it's Melody. I, I've done the same. I had 24 uh, short stories published before I even attempted a novel. I was never going to be a novelist. And then suddenly I, I couldn't make a living as a, as a short story writer anymore because, you know, the markets that used to pay 2000 back in the 90s are either gone or paying 200 now. And, mm -hmm. and so I've definitely done that. I quite often I'll try out uh, a set of characters in a short story before I invest the thousand hours it's going to take me to write a novel. That's a good idea. I've gone the other way, writing a few short stories around my detective after I'd written her first novel. Ex-cop Lacey McRae appeared in the short story Bow Tide in a 2006 anthology, Dead in the Water, from Rendezvous Press. That story got written between Lacey's first and second novels, and there are a couple of more short stories with her lurking on my hard drive, awaiting the optimum anthology to show up on the market. Jane, that's really interesting. <laughs> because you mentioned uh, Dead in the Water, the anthology produced by Rendezvous Press, and you just said your short story, Bow Tide. You and I are in the same anthology. I am in that same anthology as you. And if I remember correctly, Bow Tide has to do with the Bow River in Alberta. <laughs> so my short story in that anthology is Egyptian Queen. Because at that time in 2006, I was writing under my pseudonym, which was, I can't remember. I, I flip-flopped back and forth. It was either J.C. Saz, S-Z-A-S-Z, or Joanna C. Saz. All right. Surprise, surprise. Do we have more input? Uh, someone else? This is Marcel. And I, uh, for me, I, I was a novelist long before I ever tried short stories. That's just the way my mind works. But when I, when I started on my Mendenhall mystery series, I I had liked some of the characters so much that I wanted to give them each a little slice of story. So I started writing short stories in that world, featuring different characters in the series. Okay. So while I've got you, Marcel, yes. you, you wrote <laughs> Cold Wave. Now, so our listeners know 
Marcel Dubay. Am I saying that? Close enough. Okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Writes mystery, science fiction, and fantasy, sometimes at the same time. She is best known for her Mendenhall Mysteries series, which is set in the fictional town of Mendenhall, Manitoba, and features Chief, Chief of Police Kate Williams. Her most recent novel is Epidemic and Alley Chronicles. I'm really trying. I'm trying. You're doing mind. really well. <laughs> okay, so Epidemic and Alley Chronicles mystery set in Lower Canada. It is alternate history, science fiction, and mystery, and is the second in her Alley Chronicles mystery. The first in her Mendenhall mystery series, The Shoeless Kid, is now being featured as part of the Armchair Travel Book Club of Travel Yukon. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> so Marcel, your timing, it, when I was reading your story, uh, <laughs> Kind of, kind of scare the crap out of me. Um, now, you're all of you who live in Alberta East are going to just laugh when I say in BC we had a dump of eight inches of snow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, okay, laugh. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <Right. laughs> yeah, and we were all like, oh, okay. So um, the spouse and I, we went shoe, shoe, like snowshoeing. And I did, there was the crunch of snow. And what was wild is as we're crunching on the snow, I was thinking, gosh, if you found a dead body out here, okay. That night I came to your story, okay. <laughs> so no, it, it was unbelievable. So I remember I was reading it and then I'm getting closer and closer and closer to the book <laughs> and I'm reading. Okay, so your heroine, heroine, Olivia, she wants to meet up with the lovely Leo at the mountainside cabin and she stumbles on this violent scene. And I was impressed with the physicality of Olivia because she's skiing, she's out in the cold, she's trying to get help, trying not to get captured by the bad guys. <laughs> and um, it was the timing. You have this line in there, which I, I was like, heck yeah, right? Where, Olivia, she says, I'm cold, I'm tired, and I'm pissed off. If you don't drop that gun, I'm going to poke a hole in you. And I thought, yeah, girl. <laughs> right? <laughs> yes. So, and then I was thinking, okay, was that particular sea, ski scene based on any real life incident minus the poking of, of people with ski poles? Or maybe, maybe. <laughs> No, I've never threatened to poke anybody with a ski pole. I just want to make that clear. <laughs> um, but yeah, the skiing and the exhaustion and the um, uh, the worry about, am I going to get out of here? You know, that's pretty real. Um, I, I've done a lot of skiing. You can't tell by looking at me now, but in my youth, I did a lot of skiing. And um, when I moved to the Yukon, that's when I really started and uh, some serious skiing. But my, my cutoff was always minus 20. After minus 20, it was just too cold, just too cold <gasps> for me. Others would ski till minus 35, but they're tougher than I am. 
And um, I would sometimes take on um, a ski trail that was maybe a little longer than I should have. And a lot of the loops did not have warm-up cabins, right? Because these are tough Yukoners. 10 kilometers, you don't need a warm-up cabin for that. So, so yeah, by the time I would get back to where I'd left the car and taken my, my skis off and gotten into the car and started it, it was, oh, thank you, God. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Just grateful to actually be alive yeah. and not a frozen lump on the ski trail somewhere. <laughs> Was your mountain getaway based on a real location? Oh, uh, yeah, actually it was. Uh, there's a, a ski club in Whitehorse and Yukon. It's the uh, Whitehorse Ski Club, the Yukon Ski Club. I can't remember now. And it's uh, right in town. You just drive up the, the mountain and there's the ski club and all the trails go off from there. And there are very, very long trails. I've, uh, and many of them have got warm up huts and some that you can overnight in. So that was the basis. And then I, uh, I, I, uh, let's just say I, I was very liberal in my changes. So it's not exactly uh, the way the, the ski club is or the trails for that matter is all, all the names were changed. Um, but yeah, it was based on uh, on a ski club where I have skied in the past. Wow, wow, wow. Well, it, it was it was very cool. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot. And Thank it you. Was, it, it was, whether you call it coincidence or not, but it was the day when we, we got our eight inches. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so Karen, Karen, K.L. Karen Abramson, Abramson. She writes mystery fantasy and romance, and sometimes a blend of all three. She currently has 31 novels in print. Her historical novella, Death by Effigy, the first in a series blends mystery and fantasy. Her alternate history mystery series, the De Detective Kazakoff Mysteries, were released in 2018 and 2019. Her short fiction has appeared in a variety of anthologies and magazines, and her short story, With One Shoe, was a finalist for the CWC Arthur Ellis Award for Best Crime Short Story. She currently has a short story under contract for a forthcoming issue of Ellery Queen Mystery Magazine. Congratulations, Karen. So Karen, I'm going from the snowy and cold mountain cabin to the farmyard with the horses and the pastures. And, um, you know, it's, in, it's thinking reader experience. It was interesting reading and, you know, you're, it, I did, I, it was like a trip down memory lane, um, reading about the heroine's mother being a probation officer and risk assessments and warrants and breaches of recognizance know exactly what those are. Um, now, your heroine, Ellie, she's a teenage girl who's being bullied in school and due to the circumstances she finds herself in, she changes, so she, she has a journey. So from the very beginning, did you plan to in incorporate like the theme of self-growth, self? -growth, self growth and gaining strength with Ellie? I would say, yeah. Um, I don't 
always start a, a story with the idea of how the character is going to grow and change, but I usually try and incorporate that in because I think that makes the story better. So usually what I find myself doing is, is going, you know, I come to the end of the story and then I go, okay, that's what that story is about. And then I'll go back and I'll tweak it to make it a stronger arc for the character. But in this particular story, I was inspired by, um, uh, I was reading a creative uh, book uh, by Elizabeth Gilbert, and she talked about how timid she was as a child and that she was afraid of everything. And I thought, well, that's an interesting character. And I'd love to write about how she changed or, you know, a character like that, that was forced to change. And uh, so I basically took that character and put them into a situation um, that uh, part of it is something that I have experienced because I did have, I lived, this takes place in Prince George and I lived out on the Buckhorn Road and I had a horse murdered in the middle of the night. And uh, so exactly as it talked about, talks about in the, in the story about finding the, the baby, you know, the foal running around at liberty and so on and so that was the jumping off point there and then it was a case of well what's going on and that led to the rest of the story and okay. you know the the additional characters etc cetera, etc cetera. Yeah. so anyway yeah um so it was a different story where i started from the character um you know i they always sit, talk about with short stories a character in a setting with a problem and um so i had to work out all three but this was the strongest character i had in my head when I started to write. Okay, yeah. and and your story, I know we had emailed a little bit about the grandpa. So he, mm -hmm. he was mm -hmm. like the little cookie. <laughs> mm, you said that with yeah. the with the latte, like he it was like a treat reading about yeah. him too. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting that you reacted that way because he he was not my focus in the story it was a case of you you mentioned you know the fact that he had background in vietnam and this sort of thing and i mean i was scrambling to give him a background where he would have taken lives and so that's where that came in yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah well no very i don't want to give too much away with ellie it it was her growth was really nice to see at the end right yeah. um so now I understand, and thank you, Melody and Karen, for for keeping me on the path here. Karen, it was you and Jane who determined the order of the stories. Yeah. And um, I was wondering, how do you decide that? Like, what were the parameters What to decide whose story is first or going to go from, you know, minus 22 to then your story? It's like, how did that how did that work? Okay, well, um, this is where reader experience really comes to play. Because <laughs> when we were trying to determine the, the order of the stories, we were really um, thinking about, well, what is the reader going to experience? Um, we had to think about uh, things like uh, the strengths of each story. Um, and, you know, is it an uplifting story? Is it a humorous story? Is it a dark story? Um, and probably in the group of stories, um, mine might have been the darkest, given the way it started out with the killing and, and so on. I, I'm not sure. But um, so anyway, what we tried to do, I mean, just looking at the the uh, uh, 
the table of contents. The potluck brigade um, was a, an, an excellent story, but it was also darker. You know, um, Alice did an excellent job of taking us into that uh, that dark place of being a senior and and uh, you know all of the issues that seniors face um, as they're they're becoming less and less able to cope on their own. Um, so it was a, a very strong story, but we wanted to follow it up with something that was lighter and more fun. And local intelligence had all of that. So it was a, you know, a nice fun read. And, uh, you know, so it was a, a nice logical stop, start so that a reader would have that, that tinge of dark but then the relief of having something lighter to go along with along with it and salty dog blues continued on with that light feeling of of uh, uh of fun as we chased the chihuahua around the decks of the boat <laughs> of the boat um, and then we took a more serious bent with cold wave and uh and news on the buckhorn um, and continued that with, with autumn is a time for dying. But then we come to a mid midwinter's night scream, which has a lot of humor in it at the same time with the, this group of characters out there. And I mean, I, I frankly, I think I would have throttled my husband if I had a husband who kept quoting Shakespeare layers did. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then we come to Pickle to Death, which was a wonderful, you know, light, uplifting story that would leave somebody coming out of the, the anthology with, I, I think, a smile on their face and hopefully the sense that, yeah, you know, that was a good selection of stories. Um, and I'd like to see another anthology by this group because they're there was variety, but there was also a nice flow. So again, it was thinking about the reader experience. You can take them into a dark place, but you gotta bring them back out again. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. yeah. So that was our thinking as we were going through it. And Jane and I wrestled with it. Uh, we initially had some different stories in different places, but uh, after talking about it, this is what it came out to be. Okay, yeah. good job. Yeah, yeah. Good thank, job. You. thank you. Uh, kudos to Jane. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we worked really well as a team. It was a pleasure, great pleasure working with Jane. Good, yeah. good. So opening up. If, uh, this is Deborah um, to thank the editors of the collection because <clears throat> I know my story is about diamonds, but they were a little rough around the edges to start with. And so, uh, so you know, Karen very helpfully, you know, showing the diamonds so that, you know, it was, uh, it was a much better story. Uh, when it was finished and in the collection then to start with. Uh, so thank you to the editors. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I, and, uh, you know, I, I feel exactly the same way because Jane edited mine and it was a much better story by the time she was done slapping me around a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So opening it up to everybody. Maybe Charlotte, I'll start with you. Did any of you find any limitations or having to be extremely concise in your writing about important issues or themes because of the word count? I'm gonna, I, I'm sorry, it's Karen. Yeah. I'm gonna jump in right here and I'm just <laughs> laughing because we didn't have a word count. Not really. <laughs> Wasn't it 10,000? 
Well, 10,000, which is yeah. so long. I mean, yeah. it, you know. most people wouldn't write that long. Hey, I know. came close. This is Winona. Yeah. I came yeah. close. I'm, mine was 9,000. And I was encouraged to lose about 1,000 words, <laughs> which I did. <laughs> but I mean, in some circles, that's considered a novella. <laughs> yes, exactly that. So, I mean, most anthologies are looking for five to 6,000 mm -hmm. words. Mm -hmm. So this was really, I mean, we looked at each other when we got the submissions and went, well, we all wrote long. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah, I, I it's Charlotte speaking. I found, um, I found that the um, lack of a restriction, you know, um, made the story a bit more difficult, I think, to write. Because um, it, when you know you can only do 5,000 words, you can cut out a lot of the peripheral stuff and uh and and you know i discovered that giving me the opportunity to write up to ten thousand words was you know probably a disaster in the making <laughs> and uh and, and luckily i had karen as the editor of my story and she helped me cut it back but um you know uh yeah so it worked the other way for me it's um if if i'm going to write a short story i need to have some limitations set on it otherwise it becomes a novella or novel yeah, <laughs> yeah this so, is Deborah and I think I mentioned that um, you know I, I never have trouble expanding a, a, a short story but uh, you know whittling it down is the hard part so when I saw 10,000 words I thought wow I can do this yeah. so you know my, I think mine was in at 9,999 <laughs> words with you know the first five pages about the setting and, and then mannequins washing ashore for another <laughs> five thousand words uh, and so yeah so uh, uh, as I said the editing came in very handy <laughs> well I, I just have to say merrily thank you for writing the short story of the bunch <laughs> Because <laughs> she yes. really gave us a what a, a three thousand and some odd word story. Yeah, like yeah, that. I think it's yeah. like yeah. It's like oh, what a breath of fresh air. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, yeah, this is Marilee. I'm always really, really impressed with people who write flash fiction um, and manage to come up with a story in like five hundred words. I think that's really impressive. Um, I think probably the shortest I've ever written is is. I mean, around 800 and most of them, you know, gone up to 10,000 words. So I, I think it's really interesting, but I was on a, a webinar um, a while ago and Walter Mosley was talking about the difference between short stories and novels. And he said, well, in a novel, if a woman walks into a room and she's wearing a red dress, she just might be wearing a red dress. But if it's a short story and a woman walks into a room wearing a red dress, there has to be a reason why she's wearing that red dress and why you mention it. And I think that's yeah. really important that that um, no matter what the length of the short story, it has to be very concise and that um, everything in it needs to matter a lot more than in a novel where you can kind of go around and have subplots. And uh, yeah. the, the short story is just one plot usually. And, often from one point of view. So it's, it's an interesting challenge to work on writing that sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. Alice? Yeah, this is- Yeah, uh, well, I tend to, I'm a lot like Winona and Deborah. I tend to write long. Yeah. <laughs> so I think my story ended up around 8,500 words, but 
in this particular case with the word count of around 10,000, I truly appreciated that because it did allow me to build some layers into my story. And I think if it was 6,000 words or 5,000, I would have had to definitely remove some of those layers and mostly focus on plot. Whereas the 8,500 words that I wrote allowed me to build a little more about the characters themselves and what they were going through as seniors, you know, trying to maintain their independence and yet, you know, trying to solve these murders. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Anyone else? De Deborah here. I, I think I said uh, I've written a lot of literary short stories and I usually start out with a character and, and an issue and just explore it as I write. When I tried writing this um, mystery as a short story, it became a bit trickier because, you know, you have to get in enough suspects and you have to get in enough. Uh, so you, there are more characters yeah. that need to be involved than, say, in a literary short story where you might have one person sitting there thinking. <laughs> and so, you you know, you have to have clues and you have to have alibis and that sort of thing. So it, it becomes trickier. Um, my literary short stories are often around 2,500 words. But with this mystery, you know, yeah, it was a challenge to uh, to get all those elements in and, and um, have a, you know, comeuppance for the bad guys in the end. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Marilee, Marilee Robson, welcome. And you are the author of Autumn is a Time for Dying. Marilee Robson, I like this, is a servant to two cats. She writes mysteries when they sleep. Her first novel, Murder is Uncooperative, is set in a Vancouver housing co-op. Her short stories have appeared in Ellery Queen Mystery Magazine. The People's Friend, Malice Domestic 15, Flair, and many more. Marilee, you took us back in time, and your story takes place in the first months of World War I. Your story is located in Saskatchewan. You have Constable Frank Stewart of the Royal Northwest Mounted Police as the investigator. And as you men mentioned, your story is the sh shortest. And I applaud you because I'm a pantser, okay, when I write. And it was concise. So I wanted to know, how did you plot your story? What, what's your MO? Because there were no loose ends. And are you a pantser or a plotter? <laughs> um, I, I hate to say I, I'm pretty much of a pantser. I, I know people who sit down and do like a written outline of their stories or their novels before they even start writing. And I think that's really impressive and sounds so terribly organized. Um, with me, I usually start with the idea of a character and a scene. Um, and then it's kind of like a movie. I can see them being there. And then I kind of go through and think, what if, what are they going to do now? And what's going to happen? And uh, I guess in some ways I'm a plotter because I, but I do it all in my head. Like I'm, there are the characters and they're in the situation. And then I kind of think, well, okay, what happens now? Are they going to, um, you know, let the, the 
burglars, the bad guys get away? Or are they going to let them, are they going to catch them? What are the implications for each of those stories, each of those options and, and kind of think it through rather than writing it down. And sometimes things change quite dramatically. And, and I end up revising quite frequently as I write, which is a pain. So <laughs> I would like to be more of a blotter, but that's my process. Okay. So autumn is a time for dying is was that a personal story for you? Where did you get the inspiration for that? I got the idea from that. Well, it's, I'm also, as I mentioned earlier, working on a novel with the, the same character. Um, but um, really the, the concept of both the novel and the story was I um, went to Saskatchewan at one point after my mother died to visit the village where she been born and to kind of see the places where she lived and uh, earlier on I'd been in England and where my grandparents came from and um, sort of having seen the place you know my grandmother lived in this little tiny tiny village um, and she lived all her life and then at some point in her early 20s um, needing to find employment or I guess after her father um, died, picked up with her sisters, moved to Canada, got teaching jobs in, in these very remote places in northern Saskatchewan. And, and I thought, wow, like that's brave to leave behind everything you've known and know that you were likely never going to see those people again. Um, and thought, well, it must have been scary. And then the idea of, you know, well, then if you found a dead body, um, then it would be even scarier. <laughs> so, so that's kind of where that story came with the, the you know, the origin of, and, and so many people have that kind of story that they, they leave home and they come to a new place and um, have to make their way in the world. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. And then also with the idea of the war, if you look at the newspapers at that time and the little community newspapers, it's, you know, there's a few mentions of things that are going on in Europe, but really it's about the local baseball team. And, yeah. you know, so, it, you know, we think, oh, they they were probably there with this sense of impending doom, but I, I don't think they really were. It's only more frightening because we know what's coming in, in World War One. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So opening it up to all of you, are you pantsers or plotters? Uh, Charlotte here. I'm uh, I'm a plotter in because if uh, I wrote my first novel, sort of being a pantser, just with a brief, you know, a very little idea about a brief outline, and I discovered that if I let the characters loose by themselves, um, the story. I eventually get where I want to go, but man, the side roads and the bypasses and the um, meandering through a forest of uh, nothing but trees is, um, is brutal. So I had to force myself to um, become more of a plotter. And I, I do a lot like Marilee does. I work it out in my head, but Marilee obviously has a much better memory than I do because uh, I've learned there are several fantastic novels 
that I haven't written because I didn't write down that <laughs> wonderful thought I had at three o'clock in the morning. And I, and you know, you know how you wake up and you say, oh yeah, I'll remember this for sure because it's just too great. Right. And then in the morning, pff, no idea, but I'm positive. They were all award winners and <laughs> they were going to make my fortune for me. So now I plot. <laughs> This is Winona. Um, I learned how to write outlines when I went to film school to learn how to write screenplays way, way back in the early 2000s. And uh, it stuck with me because um, I had to work full time as well. And I found that when I was going to work, um, I was spending the better part of my creative day working for somebody else. And if I didn't write out what I wanted to do with my novels in my in my evenings and my spare time and my weekends, I would lose track so easily of what I wanted to write and the thoughts and where I was in the story and just everything. So that has stuck with me. And I'm a very visual learner. And I've recently discovered a really good mind mapping program that I can use on my computer. And I've been plotting out my next novel using that. And it's it's a first for me. I've got everything in like clouds and jagged lines and colored things and arrows every, going everywhere and frames around chapters. And it works so much better for me than just bulleting out everything in a, a written list. I can just look and see. And I would get so lost if I didn't have an outline in front of me, to be honest. Winona, it's Melody, and I've got post-its on the wall. So, yes. Yeah, I've got the same thing on my computer screen. (laughs) I I think a lot of us, certainly I did start it out as a pantser, but when you get in in a publisher's stable, then you're getting advances before you actually write the book, which means you get the advance, the money, when you get the contract, and you have to write the outline before they'll give you the contract. And so it kind of forces you into do that. Um, so I always have a loose outline before I start anything. But the thing is, I find I've done kind of the chapter by chapter outline. I don't do that anymore. I do an act by act outline. Uh, if I do chapter by chapter and know exactly what's happened, I get bored with my own writing. <laughs> so I, I guess I'm forced to write an outline, but but I like to keep a little bit so that I keep myself guessing a little bit back. Yeah. Hi, this is Alice. I I will admit I'm a, a, a plotter and uh, I like to have an outline, uh, a rough outline. The story oftentimes changes as I write it. So even the order that I sort of outline may change and the ending in every every novel I've written so far, which I'm working on number six now, the ending has always ended up differently than what I started um, to imagine it might be. Um, but it's interesting listening to Charlotte and, and Marilee. Uh, after the third book that I wrote, I thought, you know what, it, it sounds so appealing to me to be a panster. And, you know, Marilee, you said, you know, you, you admire somebody being so organized, they can be a plotter. Well, I had the reverse reaction. I thought, wouldn't it be fun if I could just you know, wing this and, and, and just write this. And so in 2019, I started writing this psychological thriller. And I have to admit, at 70,000 words, it's parked in my desk drawer. I have no idea where I'm going with this thing. And uh, it, it just took off in directions, you know, and I had such great fun writing it. But now I'm trying to corral the characters and none of this makes sense. And I've got underwater scenes and people in the mountains and uh, you know so anyway I have to admit that I am a serial plotter. (laughs) Karen speaking I uh, 
I started off as a serious, serious plotter. I had binders for each novel with a scene description for each scene in terms of where the characters were when they started the scene, where they were when the scene ended, so that I could actually follow along with the, uh, uh, you know, the, the character arc, etc., through the novel. And um, I found over time, uh, I, I wrote my first few novels that way, and then I, I found that partway through, I just sort of no longer be writing from that outline. I just, the novel and the characters would take me off doing their own thing and I would get to the end, whatever the end be. And it would not necessarily be the end that I had plotted because it became more organic. And that that point where the characters and the story took off kept moving closer and closer to the front. So I'm now a panster. I I don't plot at all. I, I, think, of, I, I think about the characters in the situation and then I go from there. And I have to say that my first reader um, has to sometimes go, nope, you missed the motivation here. You've you've gone off a little bit off skew here. And But I'm a fairly quick writer. So to go and have to do a major rewrite or a redraft of a novel is not that difficult for me. So, um, but I, I love writing into the mist. I just love that feeling of sitting down and being surprised. And there's just nothing more that just psychs me up and gives me that little chill down the back of my neck. It's when something happens in the book and I sort of go, oh, wow, that's where this is going. <laughs> and, and finding out who the killer is at the same time as the character finds out who the killer is, because I didn't know. <laughs> so, yeah. It's fun. Good. Well, I've I remember one time I plotted chapter by chapter all the way to the end. And when I was done at the end, I thought, okay, I know what's happened. I have no inclination to write this story now because I know exactly what's happening. Right? Exactly. Yeah, it's so, like you've already written it. Yeah. So Melody, I wrote down act, act by act. I like that. Right. Okay. That's the way I, the way I yeah. teach structure. Okay. Is you work from three acts and each act has a turning point or a plot point at the end of it. And then at, at the end of your third act, you can act, add a fourth or a fifth act, but the end of your third act, act, you've got the climax and the black moment. Yeah. And as long as I've got that, <laughs> then oh. I can usually find my way through. That's very much a screenplay structure too. It is. Totally. I teach screenplay well <laughs> Okay. Yeah, this is Deborah speaking. I have done both, um, you know, plotting and panster type stories. Um, I tried using something that was called a snowflake method yeah. of, of plotting, mm -hmm. and, and I ended up in a snowstorm of <laughs> snowflakes. <laughs> I became so engrossed in, you know, sort of writing down each scene, each character in each scene, that it, it just became... Um, I became less interested in my story. And so, you know, I, I folded up all of these sticky notes and, and uh, just had the general, you know, I think with a mystery, you, for me, knowing who, who done it and, and who the protagonist is and, and maybe a couple of suspects, who the victim is, and then, you know, starting into the scenes. And, and I think someone wrote recently that, you know, scenes should lead one to the next. And so, you know, so if I'm starting out in a scene, 
chronologically, you know, they should flow from each other. And so, you know, that's sort of where I start writing a scene, knowing vaguely where I'm going. And then sometimes research really interesting research will lead me to start to incorporate some other idea into the story. But if I were just a panster, I think, you know, the story would become too digressive. It would, it would be all over the place. So yeah, having a vague idea of where I'm going really helps me. Okay. Okay, good. So J.E. Jane Bernard, she is the author of A Midwinter's Night Screen. Jane Bernard is best known for her, the Maddie Hatter Adventures and now the Falls Mysteries. Her work has won numerous awards, including the Alberta Book of the Year, the Bonnie Peet, and the Saskatchewan Writers Guild Award, and were shortlisted for the Pre Aurora, the UK Debut Dagger, the Book Publishing Alberta Award, and three times the Great Canadian Story Prize. So Jane's story freaked me out, and that's a good thing. And I think it has something to do with hot tubs. In uh, Midsummer Night Scream, you have con- Jane, you have connections and references to Shakespeare's plays, and you have a cast of characters. And a novel has many layers, and I was wondering if the additional layers you wanted to. In- if there were additional layers you wanted to include but couldn't include because of the word count. While I would have liked to play up the Shakespearean characters and themes further, there simply wasn't room. Nor was there word enough and time for all the luscious food descriptions I'd written into the first draft. Due to health conditions, I lived for several years on pureed everything. For travel food, I carried baby food jars, which are the ultimate in bland, textureless, technically edible substances. Possibly your listeners can appreciate why, after those years, I can get quite carried away. Writing about delicious flavors and textures and ways of serving. And, of course, the dazzling desserts. I do love Christmas baking and I start testing recipes early in November most winters. So writing about it wasn't a stretch at all. So, Jane, when you set out to write this story, did you intend to have references to Shakespeare, or did the idea come to fruition during the writing process? In the original draft, the husband wasn't a retired Shakespearean professor. His background changed during edits, when I altered the utterly forgettable title to be a slightly farcical but very chilly midwinter foil for A Midsummer Night's Dream. Having spent three years long ago earning a B.A. in theatre, the quotes from The Bard trip easy from my tongue. The Earl of Suffolk, for example, in Henry V, I'll call for pen and ink and write my mind. It's not only the quotes that fill my mind, but the imagery and the deeper meanings, too. My working theme for When the Flood Falls, my first published crime novel, was Brutus's speech from the play Julius Caesar, which many listeners will recognize, and which is particularly appropriate for this podcast airing so soon after the infamous Ides of March. There is a tide in the affairs of men, which, taken at the flood, 
leads on to fortune. Omitted, all the voyage of their life is bound in shallows and in miseries. On such a full sea are we now afloat, and we must take the current when it serves, or lose our ventures. I'm fascinated by characters whose life pinnacles are almost within their grasp, only to be torn away by circumstance. How far will they go? How many others will they destroy in their vain attempt to stay afloat on the crest of that tide? How many murders do you think have been committed because someone's life dream was torn from their grasp at the last moment? Okay. Jane, that is an amazing answer. Wow. That's, you know, that's why I love podcasts. Um, so many great surprises. I've learned so much about each one of you and it's it's been so cool for me. Thank you. Thank you all of you for, for coming on. Um, now we're going to move on and we're going to chat with Charlotte Morganti, who is the president of the Sisters in Crime Canada West chapter. Charlotte. She is the author of Pickled to Death, in your bio, Charlotte, it says Charlotte Morganti has been a burger flipper, a beer slinger, and a corporate finance and mining lawyer. In addition to her law degree, she holds a Master of Fine Arts in Creative Writing. Now retired, she focuses on writing crime fiction, novels, and short stories, ranging from gritty investigations to lighter capers. Her novels have been shortlisted for various awards, including the Crime Writers of Canada Unpublished Novel Award, and her short stories have appeared in many anthologies. Jane, I used to live in Brentwood Bay, and every year there was the Saanich Fair, and it was like the fair on the island, and they had all those competitions, you know, who had the biggest, the biggest cucumber, who had the biggest cantaloupe, you know, the biggest tomato. Um, you wrote this. Another thing I like about your story is you wrote it in the shape of a letter. Okay, so it was as if the reader was receiving this letter. And I loved the names that was Blossom City, Gardenia Lane, your characters, Violet, Daisy, Persimmon. Those are all flowers. So did you approach your story with kind of a garden theme in mind? Oh, uh, well, there's definitely something botanical going on there, but <clears throat> um, Persimmon, the protagonist, she, she's a recurring character in, uh, in my fiction. So, um, and Blossom City um, is from the very first piece I wrote uh, with Persimmon. And it was just, you know, how sometimes when you're just playing around, fooling around with things, you can develop something, something more. So Persimmon uh, started her life as a short story that isn't post published anywhere except on my website. And it's called Squashed Death. And it came out of the, did you know there's a national sneak a zucchini onto your neighbor's porch day? <laughs> there he is. It's real. And uh, when, you know, when I saw that, I thought I would kill any neighbor 
who kept sneaking zucchinis onto my porch. And so that sort of got me thinking. And um, that is where I developed the quirkiness of the town Blossom City. But, and then Pickled to Death, that's the third story where Persimmon plays a role. And for that story, I drew on memories of my own hometown, which is a very small town. We didn't have fairs, but we definitely had a lot of bakers and women who perhaps had misplaced pride in their secret recipes. And the, I remember my mother and her friends and some of the snide comments that <laughs> grew out of the competitiveness of that baking scene and my my mother uh fussing about the fact that her sister who you know still lived in England her sister would send her tips on how to make her Yorkshire puddings better and there was always this you know well if she thinks I can't make a Yorkshire pudding just because I've moved to Canada that kind of thing so I drew on all of that because um really it fascinates me that you know we we Towns, small towns have, I don't know, the, the, the possibility of nasty things to happen also in, in, you know, in, as a crime writer, but um, also there's an awful lot of humor and uh, in real life. And, and for me, I find that in small towns, I guess that's because that's what I grew up knowing. Yeah. So you said Persimmon, she's a regular, she's a re- occurring character yes, she, is. she is and um uh she, so we were talking earlier about uh, whether or not you might take a character from a short story and make her into a novel make it into a novel and persimmon uh is probably the character i would try to take into put into a novel but i'm not sure that those type of stories or Persimmon's voice would carry a novel. Might work for a novelette, but I'm a, uh, so I haven't, I've got the idea. I know the story. It's got all to do with sourdough, but, um, <laughs> but I'm not sure that um, it, it might not do well in a full blown 80,000 word novel. So I may, I may, you know, team her up with a couple of her best friends and see what what trouble they can get into. Cool, cool, <laughs> cool. So I was working on a short story I had written a while back, and it was about six thousand words. And I was this is the, this may sound strange, but so I've been working on the second book, working on it, working on it, working on it, working on it, and then I went got pulled into the short story because I was entering it into a a contest and I like all of you love the characters in my novel um I see a novel can you tell I like food okay I talk about <laughs> minor characters like little cookies to the the latte okay I like food so I see the novel as dinner and a short story is like dessert and I was wondering if Either of you, any of you, maybe all of you, do you prefer writing short stories over novels or vice versa? Do you have a preference? 
Melody? Oh, yeah. Yeah? I'm a short story writer who's written 19 novels. And, and if I could still make a living writing short stories, I would be doing that. That's my natural length. I find 5,000 words hard to get to. Um, so, yeah, so 70, 80,000. Oh, my God, that is work for me. That is work. But I can't make a living writing short stories anymore. So, so I've had to go to the dark side of novels. And I love your description of dessert because that's it for me. With a short story, it's a little gem. Every word counts. And I love the honing of a short story down till it's just that perfect thing. And of course, you can't do that with a novel to the same extent. So yeah, I'm on the short story side. This is this is Winona. I started out writing short stories many, many, many centuries ago when I was a fledgling writer. And I think the word count back then was it had to be between 2000 and 4000 words because that was the only way that you could be published was in literary journals and the occasional um, flair magazine when it was Miss Chatelaine. and uh, I sort of look upon writing a novel as being like building a house, like you frame it and then you have the rooms and then you decorate the rooms and you fill it all out, put the roof on. And writing a short story is like building a shed. It's a very detailed shed, but it's just one room. And so that's how I visualize it. But I've, I've just rediscovered writing short stories and I'm, I've just finished another one for another anthology that Alice knows about. And uh, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. So I think I'm going to try and balance my writing out with um, novels and a short story or two along the way, because it's a completely different process and completely different mindset, but I enjoy it a lot. Okay. Okay. And this is Marilee. I, I really like the variety of short stories that, you know, if you're working on a novel is a real commitment and you have to investigate um, dealing with, you know, spending time on that with those characters. But with a short story, you can be, you can be somebody else. You can, I did a time travel thing, which was completely new to me. You could be a male character or a female character. Um, You can bend your genres or try out different genres. And I think it's really exciting for me to try different things because I've got a short attention span too. So. <laughs> this is what I said. Um, Marilee, I always think of short stories as a palate cleanser <laughs> in between I novels. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm with I'm with Marcel. I'm I I started off trying to write short stories and I did sell a few but it was just agonizing to try and keep my word count down. And uh, I loved being able to go and play in novels. And I'm talking long, fat fantasy novels. I mean, <laughs> 100 plus thousand words, just, yeah, I'd go there. But um, I'm finding now that I, I really enjoy uh, writing the novel. And then I'll take time to sort of, while I'm going maybe through the editing process or while I'm trying to you know work out what I'm going to write next I will sit down and write short stories and uh, I'm enjoying that and the practice to try and write concise as Melody talked about it's um, and it is really helpful working on that in short stories you can use it when you come back to edit the novels and uh, so that's good and I'm now surprised when I write over a hundred thousand thousand word novel yes Charlotte here um, Karen's correct about being able to use the skills you develop in short stories in your novels because like I 
started out trying to learn to write short stories in the MFA program and said, you know, this is absolutely the hardest thing (laughs) going because you, because of that, you have to be concise. Right. And I thought, I, no way am I ever going to write short stories. And so then I, I thought I can go write novels because you can have more, you know, use more words. But now that I've matured a bit, I guess, in my writing and learned a few things, now I can actually tackle short stories. But so the really great thing about short stories is that you have to get the voice and the characterization nailed quickly and so you have to show your characters in a few few words tell let the reader see who your characters really are and and that's a skill that um i think a lot of novelists should really focus on (laughs) and uh because you know all the throat clearing and pages of description of you know what the character when if they wrote a few short stories and hone their craft there, they could probably make their characters much more interesting to their readers much more quickly. Yeah. This is Deborah speaking. I guess uh, the fact that we're we're all writers in this collection of short stories suggests that, you know, the writing short stories for us is is a treat. Um, I think writing a novel, I, I often feel that I'm juggling, you know, a dozen plates in the air at the same time and not being a very coordinated person. <laughs> that, that becomes extremely hard, especially in the editing process with a novel. Um, you know, just keeping all of those um, threads straight and and the subplots and and each character's my my story has three point of view characters you know so so i'm trying to find the voice of each of them so yeah that that can be a tricky process whereas with a short story it's contained and 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 you can shape it and uh yeah it's it's a a different pleasure involved in in writing a short story for me I always think of the description of a short story as a tempest in a teacup. Um, yeah. 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 I didn't come up with that. Somebody else did, but I just, yeah, keep yeah. it compact. Yeah. Okay. Alice, did you want to weigh yeah. in on that? Sure. I, uh, I actually started off writing novels and I, that, I think that is what I like to do best, but like Karen mentioned, Um, You know, after putting together this novel, I like writing these short stories uh, during the editing process. And I think it allows me maybe because I'm writing a series uh, with my other uh, with my Georgian Knight mysteries, that it allows me to sort of get away from those characters, I get to invent a bunch of new characters. And, and so it's kind of a refresher. So I really kind of did like your description, Joanna, of like, there's dinner and then there's dessert. And so I, I do find the short story sort of give me a break, you know, from the mystery series that I'm writing and allow me to invent some new characters. And then by the time I'm ready to go back to writing uh, another novel, you know, I'm almost eager to get back there to, to the regular characters and, and continue on with their stories. So, okay. So then leading off from what you said about developing new characters, and like I said, I was working on this short story and there are a couple points. I can't remember which one of you said, um, working on the short story, it gives you a chance to try out a new genre. 
you know, a try out a new story. One of you said that, and I can't, I'm sorry, I can't remember which one. Merrily. Okay. 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 So how many of you feel that you're cheating on the characters in your novel when you go and write a short story and you're almost like having fun with these other characters? <laughs> Oh, I can speak to that. Oh my <laughs> goodness. I've I've had six series and I find even with the series, like the, the novel series, my characters are yelling at me in my head at night, you know, when I'm trying to go to sleep. You know, you already did Rowena's story. I want, you know, I'm Gina, do more of my story. And so then when you add short stories into that too, oh yes, you know, we're supposed to be writing on novels. If, if you have contracts, you're writing on novels all the time. And I feel like I am cheating when I go to write a short story. That's time I should be spent. I should spend writing something that might pay. <laughs> <laughs> might, might pay. Yeah. Yeah. Jane, what about you? What, what do you think about this question? I am shameless and polyamorous in my approach to characters and their stories. But, like any good love affair, a good story takes time and devotion. I haven't had a lot of either to give to short fiction while I was writing on publishers' deadlines for the past few years. This year I'm working on a novella and possibly a couple of other short stories, and I'm very excited about those. That's Excellent. Excellent. So good to hear. All right. Winding it up here. Is there anything anyone would like to add? Take it away. Well, I, I would like to say a big thank you to you, Joanna, for mm -hmm. setting up this podcast. Uh, it's been a real treat getting together with the other authors in this collection because we're flung far and wide and and getting to uh, know each uh, of the other authors has been been a real treat for me, too. So, yeah, I do, I'd just like to thank you for putting this together. Thank yeah, you. what, what yeah. Deborah said, this has been a lot of fun. Good, good, good. I'd, I'd good. like to, I'd like to echo that, and I'd also like to say it's been, it was a real pleasure working with all these wonderful authors and with Jane um, in coming up with the anthology. So it, it was great. Thank you very much for making it a wonderful process. I enjoyed working with you. I'll add, I'll add a note on behalf of our chapter, Canada West. Um, it's Charlotte speaking. Um, Yes, thanks, Joanna, very much for helping us um, uh, do this podcast and uh, to get the chance to chat about our stories and our process. And uh, Melody, thanks so much for the wonderful forward you did for. Oh, you're welcome. It was a pleasure. It was great. And, um, and, you know, I mean, I'm going to sign up, I hope, for Sheridan's courses. <laughs> Because <laughs> if anybody needs a boot camp, it would be me. Well, that's kind. It's called yeah. crafting a novel. Yeah. And then Karen and uh, Jane, I think um, you both did an, a marvelous job editing mm -hmm. and, and, and putting the publication together for us. I was part of the back room group, and I know how much headache and work there was in it for the editors and uh, Marcel, who got to proofread the um, anthology about 47 times. And, and still <laughs> miss things. <laughs> so yeah, it was a wonderful process. Found after it, was, it came out. Yeah, yeah <laughs> it was a wonderful process. And um, 
I hope we get to do it again. Yeah, perfect. Well, thanks, Joanna. Thanks, Joanna. Bye. Bye, everyone. Bye. 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 Bye.